0: I like to see that people want to build in this country and build for this country. But I'm very optimistic that there are real people that are excited to build real things. And I believe over the next 10 years, the government can benefit. I, I think we need to see more things like trade wins exist. I think we need to see ways for faster ways for people to get clearances and to get facility clearances and other, you know, just these barriers that kind of slow down progress to continue to be removed or addressed, whether the private sector does or whether the acquisition community does. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things,
1: not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Through our blood and your bonds, we crushed the Germans before he got here. You and I have a rendezvous with Death. All right. This is Bonnie Evangelista with the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office, joined by Mr. Van Roo. Can you introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what your role is and where you work?
0: Uh, yeah. Thanks for having having me, Bonnie. Yeah. So I'm Ben Van Roo, CEO and, and co-founder of uh, Yurtz AI. So a little bit of background about me. I've been in and around and working in either probably the defense tech area or or in artificial intelligence for, oh God, probably the better part of 24, 25 years. My whole family is military. And, and for you know reasons that I have, I have bad eyes, I kind of ended up geeking out on on the mathematics and not, not joining the, the Air Force like everyone else when, when I grew up around the military and around the DoD. Went to grad school, spent some years working with the Rand Corporation during during grad school and after. And then I really enjoyed that experience. It's kind of interesting to do policy work. I got to travel around the world and see a lot of stuff and go to a lot of bases, try to ponder on some longer term thinking projects. But I I wanted to go back into technology, a little bit faster pace in the startup world. And so moved up to San Francisco in 2010, and started working with software companies. And those that are focused on different aspects of mathematical modeling. I spent some time working in the education technology space where I helped take a a company called Chegg, grow it and take it public and, and learned a lot there. But what was interesting around that time is we started playing a lot with the early days of natural language processing. And this is, oh, circa 2012 to 2013. It was pretty rudimentary stuff, but it had a lot of potential. As we grew those that that company and the team, I decided in 2017 to, to go back to something really small. And I didn't necessarily want to be at a public company all my life. And then I went to a small startup called Primer that was focusing on natural good processing. So I did that for a few years, grew a national security business, saw a lot of an artificial intelligence in the opportunities that were both in the enterprise space, in the commercial sector. But what really kind of stuck in my mind was we were working with different parts of the Department of Defense and in the intelligence community with Walmart and a number of enterprises. At the time, I saw AI really evolving. Language models specifically were taking a lot of large steps, leaps and bounds in the 2016 through 2020 range. And the big problem that that kind of remained at our company at that time and just industry-wide is the models were getting really good But everything around the model was actually still quite hard for enterprises to use. And and what I mean by that is people would kind of deploy, let's say, an API into a company, or they would build something on their own. But it didn't necessarily work with their workflows that they did each day in, day out. It was kind of off to the side, and it was good at specific tasks. But day in, day out, what I saw a few years ago is it felt like the industry was focusing on the models and not really the human experience of how are we going to change what we're doing each day. So what is the value that comes out of AI? And so what I did is hold a bunch of the people together from my past, some of the smartest engineers I've worked with. And we built a company that really focuses on the integration of artificial intelligence into what we do. So plugging it into pre-existing applications, spanning across lots of different data sources at the same time. And what we're trying to do is really change the and augment the workflows that people have today So they can be more productive, remove some of the rudimentary tasks, et cetera, et cetera. What was really interesting is, you know, if you look at our business, we have relationships with the Department of Defense and and, and different services. And people ask, like, wow, why did you go to defense tech early? In this area, in artificial intelligence, I actually found that we saw the DoD leaning in pretty hard on what we thought where AI was going. And and there's different groups and specific programs. And there's not like, obviously, there's no programs of records around LLMs or Gen AI as of yet. But people saw this stuff coming.
1: What do you mean you saw some people leaning in? What did that look like for you? They were having more informal engagements or they were running experiments. Or That's what I thought of. What, What did it actually look like? It looked like
0: more open discussions in various forms through external engagement to trying to run experiments with, through Kratos with different companies. This is, again, kind of pre GPT and then post, it really exploded for lots of good reasons there. But what we saw is the DoD had a few programs where they invested in artificial intelligence and models. They had examples where They owned the models themselves. They had examples where companies charged them a lot of money to to get access to models. And I think there was a level of sophistication and knowledge to think about a world where open source models played a big role, where proprietary models played a big role, and that they wanted to bring these technologies to bear in a variety of scenarios. So what we saw was an increase in Kratos, increase in hackathons. Increase in just engagement, and we were, you know, fortunate enough as a relatively small company to partake in a bunch of those discussions. And you know, we we even have an announcement where one of the contracts we've closed is a BAA, and it's a pretty sizable one. And so for smaller companies, that seems like wow, that was kind of maybe punching above their weight, you know, at the time. But what I would say is, you know, there was a need. I think the DoD saw it. There were a mix of companies that were trying to do some things in the space, but it was kind of right place, for right time, I would say, with some of the stuff that we saw. And then what we're seeing now is artificial intelligence use cases have obviously exploded. People have put together tons of demos with open source tools, you know, captains and E3s and E4s, just, you know, hey, I think I can maybe automate this step. And so what's really fascinating right now is you're seeing both the commercial sector and the public sector like a massive groundswell for people to want to bring in these types of technologies in their day-to-day.
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting how you framed your experience pre and post ChatGPT, because you're I think you're right. There's absolutely a huge difference being a defense tech company. So Give me a little idea of what it it was like, especially 2010. I feel like even a span of 10 years, almost now 15 years since 2010, so much has changed even before ChatGPT. What was that like in, I don't know, that era of defense tech versus now? Are the challenges the same? Are they different?
0: Yeah, they're very different. I mean, I think what I'm probably better that I'm, I'm most close to, I would say is, well, I knew the era, and this obviously dates me a bit, let's say the 2004 to 2010, but then there was a gap when I was not working with the Department of Defense and working at a different s- startup. But I'd say, to me, the interesting kind of change point in, that I like to talk about is like 2016, 2017. So prior to that, you know, and, and the, it's not that there aren't small companies that aren't working with the Department of Defense and work, like contracts were won and money was made, but in many ways, the Silicon Valley, you know, as what we would say and assume in our stereotype, that kind of arc of those types of companies over the last seven, eight years has changed drastically. So, you know, the twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen range. If you were a company like mine at that time, you know, I, I think your best pathways were to. Frankly, work with IncuTel was probably your best, in my opinion, one of your best opportunities, unless you had very specific defense background, unless you really knew who you were selling to right away. If you were a tech company and you were trying to work with, you know, like a proper, you know, handful of nerdy kids in San Francisco, you were really trying to find a pathway, a person, a group that could help bridge. In 1890, that that was really starting the era of like AFORCS. And then afterwards, you saw, and well, really, efforts and Maven were two big programs where I think, like, the marketing around Sivers and the intention around open topics, the folks at Maven kind of leaning in and choosing defense or VC-backed companies. You know, it was also kind of the low point where you know this is well documented, where Google and was you know backed out of working with Project Maven, and if you were in the defense world. Or if you were in the the Silicon Valley world, it wasn't very cool. you know. So, so that was an interesting time. It was kind of the low point, but it really, I felt like that was a year that set the stage for uh, a lot of the progress that came. So, you know, 17 to 20, you saw things like ABMS come online. You saw a lot of progress. Palantir was doing well. They had not yet IPO'd, but it felt like the years where, you know, maybe defense isn't so bad.
1: That's a very interesting take on it i don't think i've heard anyone articulate it quite like you have another element to your 2016 2017 time period the other thing that changed for the contracting community well i guess the acquisition community at large was the follow-on production feature was added to the nda i can't remember the year exactly i think it was 2016 but that was that was one of the game-changing moments to enable That is a a real contracting mechanism or instrument for a lot of people, both on the government and the industry side. And I never thought of it like you said, so of course, the things that are happening today make sense because between Mm. that and now, to your point, there's more familiarity, there's been more time to play, there's been more time to design because these things just don't happen overnight. That's interesting.
0: I was just going to say that some of the challenge and the rub that's going to happen in 24 and 25 is depending, you know, how the, these companies have projected their finances, whatever they assumed they may make from the government in terms of revenue or at least bookings and, you know, single year, multi year things type of contracts. There might be a lot of pressure, you know, hardware companies, very heavy, capital intensive. Things, software companies, it's, it's less capital intensive, but also like you need ATOs. And so, you know, you. I, I think there are things, you know, again, like a second front or an, an Apollo that, that are part of the process, but, you know, getting a facility clearance, getting the ATO to, to grow and expand against, you know, you just, in some ways, this is like any VC backed company. If you said that you were going to accomplish something and didn't really understand this industry and what scale actually means, uh, you know, some people will get bit. You know, and, and I think similarly, you can absolutely look at the prime contracts that exist and the ODCs and say, probably a really small percentage of those are tied to Silicon Valley backed companies. That may change, but it's not going to change overnight.
1: Do you think, and we're speaking in generalities, on the defense tech side, startups want to be responsible for scaling? Or do they? I also see a side of industry that just wants to build cool new things. And so, I don't know, from your perspective, do most of the new things that are coming out from startups and whatnot? Do they want to do it all, or do they just want to like kind of niche themselves in that? I just want to, you know, build and create and do hands-on keyword type of things.
0: I, I don't know because there's a there's like in some ways the arc that's rewarded of the startup founder when you're raising money is the like twenty you know four year old. Harvard or Stanford person that wants to build cool things, and they're going to hit massive scale through product led growth, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, you have to in your mind like VCs are not looking for singles and doubles; they're looking for grand slam home runs that are going to pay off the fund. So, in in some ways, by our very nature, you know, in the early days of a company's inception, people are just trying to address a problem that they think is really cool, and they want to throw their entire lives at it, and you know. Obsess about it and get, you know, early gray hairs or whatever, but you know, in, in some ways it's the, in the defense tech world, I think it's a little bit different because you can have people at those companies that are super inspirational. But if you look at, but if you look at like, you know, Palantir's arc, it was a very talented, gifted people, well-backed, and they went through, you know, a slog of building that business. It was a long time coming. You know, this is not an overnight success it was successful along the way, but it was methodical and it had some real, you know, visionaries, but it had some real talented people that thought about selling and strategy, etc. cetera. Andrel, again, like you, the cards were stacked and, and they're all, they've had, they deserve all the success they've had, but they knew the military, they knew contracts, they had genius product people and they were extraordinarily well backed out of the gate. And so when you're looking at You know, a a seed investment type of couple of smart people in their garage. Like, are they going to navigate the entire DoD process for years? Are they going to be thinking about government relationship strategies? Like, maybe not. And so, so I think, yeah, there's real for the acquisition community. Those are not necessarily dimensions that you can evaluate on every contract. But is this thing that potentially the DoD is investing in going to be successful, or is it you know interesting kind of cool tech and I don't know, because sometimes that is the the right way because you, you end up you know hitting a home run with some piece of technology. And so so I don't have I don't have an easy answer for you there, but but I think it happens on both sides in the commercial world and, and certainly in defense tech.
1: Would you say it is easier to get into defense tech now than it was 10 years ago?
0: Y- yes, ish. So yes, I think that there are more so 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 there are more pathways. There are more Types of contracts, there is more support from the venture community. And that's even like recent. When I started our company and I said that a decent amount of our business would probably be national security, it wasn't wildly loved. And I think even when we did our series, there were kind of mixed reviews on certainly doing a dual use. There's a lot of like reasons why you shouldn't do that, especially at an early stage company. But the pathways that I knew that existed were much more. What I'd also say is, I think in some ways that why the, in the dual, at least my perspective, and I'm, I'm a company that strongly believes that we're a dual use technology. But I think for the most part, I would recommend you just choose one. Because to be a strong dual use technology solution, you need to have the technology needs to really make sense in both markets. And a lot of times that's actually not the case. And then the sales and distribution needs to make sense in both markets because doing awareness and distribution and commercial can be drastically different or just they both require a ton of energy. And then the last thing is I think the team has to get the slog that you're entering. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the founders might be your writing Sibbers and BAAs and, you know, like... Doing all the documentation and going out to DC all the time and not necessarily going to where all the rest of customers might be in the commercial world. And on the other side of it, I mean, you look at a technology like ours, you can deploy us on bare metal you can put we are deployed in hybrid environments, any of the clouds, and we'll have a hosted solution. And by the way, like we're going to be aisle four through hopefully aisle seven the not so distant future like that's a lot of commitment to infrastructure deployment models just acronyms to like organize it and and so it's their advantages for companies that can do it but it's a real challenge to straddle that line i think for small companies that can commit to going into defense there are more earlier pathways and then there are the bridging of the, okay, you got a zipper or phase two. There are more things, you know, the tech file draft the app fits. Some people view that as kind of sugar to kind of keep the company going and find product market fit. And, and there's not, right. that's somewhat, I think, accurate. But I think there is also, there are needs for those different mechanisms to, ex- to give companies a chance to make those next few steps.
1: Right. Your comments on dual use are interesting because I'm not sure. Sh- Sure, I land on either side of the argument, but I've heard this argument so many times. And the you mentioned AFWorks earlier too; they highly value dual use as part of their cyber criteria and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So there's this, I would say, push or incentive to go dual use. So that must be very challenging to navigate.
0: Yeah, tells the same way. I mean, they're going to evaluate you. you. You know, Inqtel in some ways is a the model for a long time was companies that. Many of the companies that existed that we could try to bridge the gap. Well, you know, Intel could help you get up to the next phase. It's ways, DIU. Like you exist as a commercial company. You have cool tech. You know, there's a pathway. DIU is much more of a series A, series B, series C. You know, you've made progress as a company. And now let's help get you into the, the defense world. And so there's almost the motions. And I, I think that there's a lot of infrastructure around that because in some ways it makes sense. But I, I think there's a lot of really valid arguments that say, You know what, if you're building a drone to do X, like, sure, it could kind of maybe be used in a civil or in a commercial world, but like, probably not really. And, you know, in software, if you're building an open source product like growth company, like, you know, we work with uh, a company called Unstructured for one of our contracts, and Brian Raymond's a good friend and a great founder. They're very unique that they have an open source play and then plays that are really specifically tailored for the government. It's just different. It doesn't happen that often. And so I think the idea of saying, hey, look, we're going to straddle and monetize in both markets or both sides of the coin, like it, it's very rare. It can happen. You know, I hope that we continue to make progress in that space on our end. But you really have to have technology that makes sense, sales and distribution that can do that slog, and then a team that can navigate the sides. And I think that's, you know, That's challenging.
1: Yeah, I would imagine in that scenario, your company almost has to have double, I was gonna say double the functionality, but for sales, for example, you need government DOD sales or whatever, and then you need your commercial sales. And so every function of the company has to have two sets of itself to satisfy two different audiences. Is that what it looks like? Kind
0: of. I mean, you know, I'm going through this right now. We're not a massive organization, but we have people that focus on commercial and we have people that focus on DoD. Uh, what I would say is that like, for what we do, if I'm talking about, you know, hey, we can connect to SharePoint and Oracle and, you know, any data stores that you have. And we can plug into lots of different applications. On one hand, it's like the tech stack in some ways for JP Morgan doesn't look drastically different than the, the tech stack for the DoD Lots of SharePoint and email or, or whatever, you know. So, so for us, we can span that, but the language is different. You know, obviously, you're going to different events, but maybe to, to pause. If you're in the commercial world and you're going really heavily in, let's say, fintech, and you want to do CPG, you know, your CPG salesperson isn't necessarily going to be great at selling to the banks. So, on the one hand, you know, I don't want to get too wrapped around like woe is us in, in defense. If you go in the commercial world, they, they have some of the same challenges. They're, they're a little bit different. You know, you're not working, a, a worried about Zipper, but in some ways, like the infrastructure and security protocols that we think about to be able to be deployed on aisle six is, you know, not probably too far off than what, you know, JP Morgan wants to care about. You know, sorry, I'm sorry, not, we're not on JP Morgan. I'm just picking on them today.
1: Right. Well, what do you think is in store for us over the next 10 years? And defense tech in particular, you know, we started with defense tech and went from 2010 to now post GPT. We have Mm -hmm. things, more tools in our toolbox, I would say, more channels for, you know, barriers to entry or sorry, less barriers to entry, hopefully. And what's that going to give us next 10 years from your vantage point? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think there's a belief by some that are going to say that the defense tech and VC bubble is going to burst in the near term. And, and I think that there's a chance that there could be a rough couple of years ahead of us, just in part like the CRs that we have in place and it's an election year. Yeah. So the assumptions around your immediate monetization in that space is different. You know, I, I think we will need to fundamentally see some degree of shift in either the amount that, that the primes are being awarded or just that the percentage of ODCs that are going to, to some of these startups that are, are popping up in the world. I do think if you look at some of the startup technologies, some capabilities that are maybe traditionally given to a prime and then some subcontractors to snap together Amazon services to do X, there are some really good COTS offerings that are going to pop up that I think will potentially and hopefully naturally erode some of the heavy service area building that just tools that exist. So you know, I mean, Palantir was a classic example in that space, and in, in what they did, good or for bad, but I, and I don't know that it's going to lead to litigation. But I think there's opportunities there. In the midterm, I, I think we're dealing with a, a different world. I think defense is going to be a growing industry. It has been, and I think it'll be a gr- growing part of the national budget. And, and I think that there will be more success. So in the short term, there'll be some wins. I think we could see. You know, you could see an Android exit in an IPO. I mean, SpaceX continues to be an incredible company. But, you know, those are kind of the outliers. I think, you know, there will be hopefully some pretty solid examples of companies that really grew up in this generation and this, this vintage of startups that had successful exits. But yeah, I mean, frankly, like the kind of chip on their shoulder, mechanical engineering nerds that are in El Segundo that are, you know, tweeting how cool it is to be in defense tech. That's amazing to me. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm don't. i not really good at, at tweeting per se, but I think that's like, I like to see that people want to build in this country and build for this country and not do paid search ads. And, and there's, there's a place for that. But I, I'm very optimistic that there are real people that are excited to build real things. And I believe over the next 10 years, the government can benefit. I, I think we need to see more things like trade wins exist, I think we need to see ways for faster ways for people to get clearances and to get facility clearances and other, you know, just these barriers that kind of slow down progress to continue to be removed or addressed, whether the private sector does through, you know, through those the companies I've, I've mentioned, or whether the acquisition community does. So, you know, I'm optimistic. I think we're going to need to see more progress like that, and then let the market, you know, work itself out and so it'll be interesting
1: do you have any concerns from your seat of being too much uh, saturation of tech and i'm not even going to niche it beyond the generalization of tech i'm not even going to say ai tech but just curious if that is something on your mind because on my side i sometimes hear commentary from the government buyers the people who have to consume the tech that there's so much out, like even right now there's so much out there how do you like wade through all the things curious if that was any, anything you you know have had to any thought experiments on that i guess from your side
0: yeah i, I don't know i could go on a rabbit hole on, on this one i, so I think that it's exciting to see companies and people have a little bit more of an outsized role in marketing themselves their defense tech startups their defense tech vcs it like sometimes i you know in some ways it's like when you've been around things like ai and in that space for a while and you kind of see you know thought leaders popping up on linkedin that have been engaged in this for at least six months you know that type of stuff you're like okay do you really know this? And, and the same kind of with the defense tech scene. It's like, are are we gonna are we gonna implode and there's so much marketing and hype? But I, I try to back up a little bit and say, okay, what's the extreme alternative? And the alternative is that people are not engaged and we're in another generation of people working on things that I don't necessarily think advance humanity. And so I hear you. I see a lot of companies that say they do stuff and people that say they do things that are like lightweight wrappers around GPT-4 and they're really hyping up their solution. And like, maybe that makes sense and maybe they're a company, but also like maybe they're just a distribution channel and, you know, it's that puts it, it makes it hard for contracting acquisition officers. And And I'll speak about AI to say like, what's really there? How do we assess what this is going to look like in five years in production? Is it going to be extremely expensive to support from a compute standpoint? Or is this really thoughtful technology? I think the acquisition community has an extraordinarily difficult... You look at like open topics for Sivers. That's amazing. But now you have a flood of amazing companies, as opposed to... You know you hear me whine in my past writings about like only a handful of companies really getting a lot of that money. You have a flood of companies putting their proposals forward and, you know, we haven't created the infrastructure necessarily to truly evaluate this huge aperture opening. If you had a very specific topic, you could have an expert, you know, potentially review that area and, and weed through it. Like we're putting a lot more in the acquisition community to be experts in everything. And I think that's hard. I think the, you know potentially like even the liability structure around. Well, did this person get it right? This, you know, how do you decide? Well, how does a contractor, does an acquisition officer, decide? You know, is it how much they've raised and how many MOUs they have that also support? Because I can't really sort through all this, and I think that's extremely challenging. If I were to, in my world, if I were to back up, I'd say you know, we either have to just neck down and choose v- X companies and place hard bets. That doesn't necessarily feel like meritocracy. I, I think we could say, or we open up the aperture and we make a bunch of little mistakes. And, in, you know, the, it's just a trade-off of what we want to do as a country and as a nation in fostering the development of companies in the space. I mean, I, I think the only thing I... I think it will be a very good 10 years. I think it might be a bumpy one or two. But I hope is we don't recoil when a defense startups fail and we don't you know yeah. companies fail all the time have some per- we all need to have perspective and then say did we make some advancements in the space and that's a longer term
1: I feel very seen by some of your comments about like kind of the struggles or the challenges the acquisition community is facing and going to fa- continue to face I would also I think all of your points are very fair in that Where do you want to land with this conversation? What else was left unsaid that you want to share either with industry or the government in terms of like where we want to continue to focus or double down on?
0: I think it's a, it's an interesting time to, to just have, try to encourage all sides to have a little pause and think a little bit, you know, in, in decades a bit, as opposed to the here and now and the hype of it all we have a very pressing need in terms of just the global dynamics and geopolitical environment that that we all live in we have some seismic changes in technologies when you look at ai you can look at drones you know anything in space we have areas of gaps like everything around ew counter uas like there are some real things that can expose the entire industrial military base and the, the defense world as we know it. And so, you know, kind of like, all right, try to sometimes, you know, even when you're doing your day-in, day-out tasks and, and you see hype or you see annoying things or, or things and you're in the acquisition community and you're just trying to sort out like who's who in the zoo. In some ways, I am trying to say, like this is a moment in time that we have to kind of know that it's going to exist and, and it, it too shall pass in advance. You know, and again, what I'd hate to see is really hard reactions one way or the other, assuming that however the next, you know, five quarters are going to play out during election year or whatever, that it's going to be, it'll be a little bit weird, but I think there's a really good opportunity to make substantial progress.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for your giving me a little bit of your time and for sharing your insights and experience with me.
0: Thank you, Bonnie, and thank you to everyone at Tradewinds and in the acquisition community. You guys are doing God's work right now, so greatly appreciate it.